walked down to the front of the Trafalgar Studios stage and I looked out in the audience and I went, ladies and gentlemen, do we have a doctor in the house? And there was a laugh from the audience, nervously <laughs> laughing. And I went, no, seriously, do we have a doctor in the house, please? Hello and welcome to Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design, how we live, the clothes we choose, and how we organize our space. I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified KonMari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is actor Simon Paisley Day. He's credited in over 100 stage, film, television and radio productions. From Private Lives on Broadway with Kim Cattrall, to numerous Shakespeare plays, TV shows, including The Crown, Doctor Who and Midsummer Murders, and feature films like the most recent Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker. Join me as we pull back the curtain and go behind the scenes, exploring everything from stage fright and fainting to the role of green apples. Simon, welcome. Thank you so much for being here, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's very nice to connect with you again after many years. Alexandria and I both knew each other at Shakespeare's Globe some years ago, quite some years ago. Yes, exactly. And to give listeners the full background, we met in 2012, which does remain one of my all-time favorite years. You know, there was, of course, the 2012 London Olympics, and London felt like such a place of goodwill and kind of happiness and joy that summer. But the real highlight was definitely that show at Shakespeare's Globe. We did 68 performances of Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> We did. It was a wonderful summer and a fantastic production of quite a difficult play. But Toby Fro, who directed it, he very much wanted to do it in period style, in period costumes. Not that he was ducking away from the difficulties of the play, but you update some of Shakespeare's plays at your peril. And that's one of them that the more you update it, the more problems you find with it, because how on earth can you have Kate saying some of her lines in a in a post-feminist environment? You know, you then have to sort of change everything you do about the play and indeed change a lot of the intentionality of the lines to fit with your vision of the piece because you've updated it. Setting it in Shakespeare's time when, I suppose women were less visibly liberated, quite substantially, and Petruchio is a madcap creature, and Kate is a very angry, shrewish woman, and I don't know, I suppose the audiences came along and they didn't have a problem with it, because I suppose they thought, oh well, we're looking at a couple who were doing what they did 400 years ago, when things were slightly different, and actually it fomented an awful lot of wonderful bickering and banter between couples who came to watch the show in the bar you know people would come up go, oh we had a great old time and me and the missus were really arguing about you know the sexual <laughs> politics of it and so you know it, it was bawdy and it was light and it was funny and it remains one of my most favorite theatrical experiences 
Yes, it was certainly mine as well. And before that, I always thought Taming of the Shrew is my least favorite Shakespeare play. But now it's my favorite just because of that production. And I guess getting to know something on that level as well. Yeah. Um, and experiencing it so many times. And you and your Kate were hilarious as well. Well, Sam and I already knew each other a little bit, but we became great friends on that job. And was it 2012? Yeah. So yes. eight years later, we worked together again, this time last year, on The God of Carnage by Yasmin Reza. And we started it in Bath and we took it on a very short tour, intending to bring it into the West End, but then COVID hit. And you know, anyway, we did a, a four or five week tour of Glasgow, Guildford, Bath, Cambridge, and uh, had a fine old time and argued just as much in that as we oh. did as Kate and Petruchio. Excellent. That's what I was going to ask. So <laughs> Very lovely. <laughs> but that didn't kill our friendship either. It cemented it. So that was good. <laughs> so argument can cement a friendship, I guess, on some level. Yes. So long as you're doing it in character. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Important distinction. And the Globe audience is so very special too, isn't it? I think they're responsive and you can feel their presence and enjoyment so acutely certainly compared to my previous experience in the classical music world but yeah how about for you as an actor do you think there's something special about the globe stage there is something very special famously mark rylance who was of course one of the first actors really to be on that stage when it opened famously described it as sort of getting into a lovely warm bath you know you walk out onto that stage and you just look around you and you see 1400 friendly faces and uh you think it's going to be frightening and in fact it's just fabulous because of course no one's frowning saying go on and impress me they're actually beaming at you going go on entertain me because it doesn't feel so much like a formal theater as just a sort of an open space that you share and that there's there's not the delineation between actor and audience you know where the lights go down and the lights come up on the stage and even though you are sharing a room with them they are very much on stage and you are off stage in the globe everyone is sort of on view even in the evening for most of the evening and uh, there's a lot of playing with the audience a lot of nudge nudge wink wink <laughs> seeing someone's face and saying a line exactly to that person down there the audience feel like they're part of the performance Oh, they completely do. It feels so alive and they can really believe in it to a crazy degree. I know some kind of mad things happened during our production. I don't know if you remember those memorable moments at the beginning of the show. I think one involved an off-duty police officer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so tell us about that. What do you remember of that day? Well, I was cast as Christopher Sly, but it starts with a, a trick played on this drunkard. And Toby Fro's conceit was that when the Globe audience was arriving at the theatre, my Sly was this totally, like, lagered up uh, football fan who's, like, wandered in and he's, like, not even meant, doesn't he know he's at the theatre? He's just walking around with this can of lager off his face. And so he had me mingling with the audience. And then when people said, right, time to go in, the bells rung, I, to the consternation of many audience members, was seen drifting in and sort of walking through the crowd and people were going, oh, there's that wanker from, oh, sorry, there's that 
drunkard from <laughs> from outside and he's in oh what's going to happen not knowing that i was an actor and then when people came onto the stage i got up on stage and walked over and supposedly got my manhood out and started weeing against a pillar <laughs> But of course, it wasn't really in my manhood. It was a piece of plastic attached to a <laughs> fake bladder of yellow liquid tucked under my arm. And then I would sort of drunkenly spin and, as it were, pee on one of the audience members. And, and he was a plant as an American tourist. And he was going, oh, my God, this is disgusting. So, you know, you had 1,400 people thinking, oh, my God, the drunkard has come into the audience and he's on stage and he's now urinating on one of the American tourists. Oh, my God. And totally believed it. Shortly after that, some other actors came in and sort of wrestled me to the ground. One night, an audience member, seeing me peeing on an American tourist uh, turned out to be an off-duty copper who thought here we go i'm going to perform an arrest he leapt up on stage got me into a half nelson practically broke my shoulder got me wrestled me down onto the ground and was going right mate that's it you've you know <laughs> that's you nicked governor <laughs> and uh and it was only when a, a bunch of the other actors rushed up to him and whispered he's he's an actor he's an actor and the poor bloke he went purple oh. looked oh. around him and uh, couldn't really believe it he was so so convinced that he was arresting a member of the public but then shamefacedly he left the stage and we asked what had happened to him later and apparently he he was so embarrassed he couldn't stay to see the rest of the show and apparently he'd brought a date you know it was like a first time out with this young woman and they'd had to leave the theater so uh, i don't know if that relationship ended up going anywhere i think oh, he just felt no. too embarrassed but then about a week later there was another one where a medical student jumped up didn't they it was a medical student because i so if if the policeman hadn't um jumped on me the normal situation was that the other actors would come across and would just be about to grab me and I would faint because I was so drunk and then they would lie there and they would take my pulse and they would you know do a bit of acting about like oh what's happened to this guy one night another guy jumped up out of the audience onto the stage and was going um I, I'm, I'm a I, I'm a medical student I, I'll just you know I'll, I'll take his take his vital signs and stuff and the other actors would go okay all right so this guy was like feeling feeling around and and i could feel his fingers on my wrist and then i heard him say i, I can't i can't feel a pulse i think he's gone i think he's gone and i thought wow i've died apparently i've died <laughs> um but i don't know where my pulse was at the time somewhere <laughs> behind my left ankle but uh no, I did think, gosh, I, I must be all right as an actor. I've managed yes. to convince a medical student that I'm actually dead. <laughs> I know, it's the ultimate tribute, yes. Yeah, those are our two silly little things from that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, they are kind of delightful, aren't they? I remember those well. I don't know if I actually saw them or if it's just the lore, you sort of hear about it. And the other thing was your date and tamarind cake. You were responsible for a very, very fine cake. So as well as being an excellent musician and a maker of <laughs> jewellery and a sort of colour and design and style expert, uh, Alexandria is also an amazing cook and produced this phenomenally moist date and tamarind cake, which I have taken over as my speciality cake. 
its speciality cake by dint of being my only cake. Um, <laughs> and I make it every six months or so and people go, ooh, ah, what an amazing cake. And I sometimes credit you with it, but other times I... <laughs> now you can keep it for yourself. So how recently have you made it then? During lockdown? Uh, I did. I made it for my kids' school, but then I was carrying it down the pathway. And then I saw on the table, it said that no nuts could be in any of the cakes. Oh. So I went oh, and stuck no. it back in the in the boot and we all hoovered it up at home. It's got, <laughs> it's got walnuts in it. And I think there was one other cake I made during that time at the Globe, a chocolate cake. And at that time, I didn't realize how many actors and, you know, people who do professional voice work seem to avoid chocolate when they're working. But I think you were one of the few who actually had some during the show. Well, I don't really hold with all that nonsense. <laughs> I mean, I'm regularly to be found saying Macbeth. Well, I thought that was delightful that someone with the most lines ended up having my chocolate cake. So. <laughs> well, I think when you when you have as many lines as Petruchio has, and with so much sort of shouting, that any clag that, you know, I think that's what people think chocolate cakes do, just sort of stick to the vocal cords like a bunch of, you know, clay and not get shifted. But when you're regularly going, you can, <laughs> you know, you, you rattle the bits of chocolate off the vocal cords. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine as long as you have a nice shouty part. <laughs> yeah, shouty part are a good, fresh, clean, green apple in the wings, apparently. I've just recently oh. learned that. I was in a recording studio somewhere and someone said, get him a green apple quickly. And I was going, what? I've been an actor for all these years and I didn't know about this. And yes, if, if there's ever that yep. thing going on in your mouth, they uh, and now I listen out for it and very often hear it on Radio 4 and I speak to the radio going, get that man a green apple. <laughs> it's just the acid in it just kind of cleans the mouth of all that extra stuff, makes things crisp. Oh, that's, that is fascinating. It's like hearing a new word. I heard that sort of story very recently. I can't remember who it was, actually, but some well-known actor. And they talked about fresh green apples or not? Yes, exactly. So strange. Like a new word. You hear it all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and Simon, you have such a wonderful stage presence and that charismatic confidence as well. And of course, your mellifluous voice. Um, so I'm just wondering, do you ever get butterflies? Do you experience any kind of anxiety or stage fright? Do I have stage fright? Well, no, I don't. I've never really had stage fright as one reads about it. You know, there are actors who have had moments on stage where they go, that's it, I'm out of here, Daniel Day-Lewis, or, you know, and they, you hear they don't come back for 10 years or something. I, I've never, and I count myself very lucky, I have never had that. Uh, that's not that I haven't had moments of brain absence. I absolutely <laughs> have had that. And fairly recently, I had a couple in The God of Carnage a year ago. You can absolutely think that you know your lines and you've done it 35 times and you're all over it and you're focusing and you've had your cup of coffee and then in the middle of the speech your brain just goes Bleh. and that's not necessarily to do with getting a bit older either it's happened to me earlier in my career but I suppose what I think about that is that you get to the end of it and even though you're a bit spooked and freaked generally speaking the audience don't even know what's happened. I mean, unless you actually walk down to the footlights and go, ladies and gentlemen, I just really screwed up there. I forgot all my lines. And even then they would think <laughs> that it was part of the play. They don't notice. You can say any old rubbish. 
So I sort of thought, well, just relax about that then. There was another time a, a couple of years ago in Canada and I was doing the Lorax and we were, I was just sitting there with this puppet being operated by three people, but myself and the puppet sitting at the front of stage, a couple of thousand people out there. And again, something I had done for 150 times, absolutely no idea what I was meant to say. And absolutely no idea how even to improvise it. I just was very tired. My brain just went, no, nah, not, not playing. And um, so I sat there and just sat there and thought, well, at some point something will come to me. And then it didn't. And the three puppeteers couldn't help me because they were thinking about what they were going to have for their supper that evening. And the, the puppet certainly couldn't help me. Uh, <laughs> and so I turned to the, the wings and I went, yes. <laughs> Silence. I thought, okay, maybe yes doesn't quite do it. I went, line line very loudly no that wasn't going to work so then i went prompt prompt nothing nothing so i thought all right well so i stood up and i took a little walk around looked out in the audience and then i sat back down again and then i thought oh it's something about and got back into it but meanwhile you know a whole minute had gone by and i don't know what the audience thought was going on i think they must have thought my character was having a nervous breakdown possibly <laughs> <laughs> rather than the actor but no one i mean i knew some people out there that day and they didn't i said what was that bit where you walked around i went oh i completely forgot my lines they went oh did you oh god we just thought that was a weird thing where you where you were having like a a moment. I said, well, I was having a moment. They went, no, but we thought it was the character. I went, oh, good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could tell another anecdote, which is even madder, if you like. Uh, please, please. A few more years ago at the Trafalgar Studios, this is about six or seven years ago, I was in a play called Entertaining Mr. Sloan by Joe Orton. And um, Matthew Horne was playing Mr. Sloan. And Imelda Staunton was my sister. And I was Ed, her brother. And uh, very lovely marvellous production Matthew was very tired because I think he'd been introducing the Brit Awards or the something awards the night before with James Corden at some big gala thing so he was terribly tired and we had a, a matinee that day and he came in and he, he said to me oh I'm really I'm knackered I'm just so tired I went, you know, but I didn't think anything was going to go wrong and uh, he, he was on stage with Imelda and I was waiting to come on under normal conditions, I would walk on stage as Imelda came off, leaving me alone with Mr. Sloan. So I was standing backstage and listening to them, thinking, this is not what they normally say. This is it's a bit funny. They're making some stuff up. Imelda's doing most of the... No, Imelda... I don't know who's talking. This is all a bit weird. Anyway, I waited, and there was another long silence, and Imelda came off, white, white as a sheet, sort of stared at me and just shook her head and kept walking. And I thought, well, Matthew's still on stage and I meant to go and talk to him. So I walked on stage. And my opening line to him was, where was you last night, boy? Where was you? So I went up to him, he's just sort of looking at me rather weirdly. And I went, where was you last night, boy? Bang, he hit the floor, just absolutely fainted. Really? And I looked at him and I thought, this is one of these weird theatrical things where you're not sure. I was confused. I was thinking, is he, is he, is he mucking about? And I went, so I said, get up, boy. Boy, get up. And he didn't get up. So I sort of gave him a gentle kick. 
<laughs> I said, get up. So I was meant to be very aggressive at the time, not getting up. So then I bent over him and looked in his face, absolutely out for the count, you know, lifted his eyelid, nothing there. I thought, he's died, he's died, he's died. So, so I thought, this is, a, this is one of these moments in one's career that you can't shy away from. I walked down to the front of the Trafalgar Studios stage and I looked out in the audience and I went, ladies and gentlemen, do we have a doctor in the house? And there was a laugh from the audience, nervously <laughs> laughing. And I went, no, seriously, do we have a doctor in the house, please? And then the stage manager came on stage and he said, can we have the house lights up? please?" So the house lights came up and you could then see 500 people all looking at us. Then Imelda came on stage and walked down to the front of the stage and, and was very tearful going, I'm just, I'm very, I'm very sorry. I'm, I'm very, I just want to say, this is not this poor lad. I, it's, not, it's not his fault. It's my fault. You see, I, I, she was, she was having a moment too. She started apologising for having forgotten her lines, which panicked Matthew. Apparently what had happened was that she had had a little bit of a thing, a bit of a mental blip, had said a load of old bollocks. He had then totally panicked, started having palpitations because he thought, I, I can't, I can't rescue the scene. I've, I was up all night introducing some awards somewhere. I've, I was just going to sail through this on autopilot and uh, I can't cope with this. It, you know, he didn't hit the deck till I was on, but he just got through it with Imelda. She went off. I dealt with him hitting the deck. Anyway, some, some chap at the back of the audience stood up and went, um, well, I'm not a doctor, but I'm an ophthalmologist, retired. And this very elderly Irish, he must have been in his 80s, very sweet, charming, tweed-wearing Irish ophthalmologist, stumbles down to the front and jumps. He says, I'm not a doctor, but I'll check his vital signs. It's rather like the, <laughs> the medical student at the Globe. And he, he, with some people's assistance, he was hoiked up on stage and he was checking Matthew's pulse. And Anyway, and then the St. John's ambulance arrived and they took him out. And But even at that point, if you will credit it, and I beg you to, um, the audience, and again, I had some people in, they didn't know, they didn't know the play, they didn't know the Joe Orton play. they just come along going, okay, what's this about? They thought all of this was real. They thought, oh, this is a frigging weird play because now the stage manager comes on. Oh, well, look, there's ambulance coming. And the character, Mr. Sloan's being taken off the stage. I mean, it, <laughs> and it did just make me think, well, you could, you know, you need just to relax about that whole <laughs> forgetting your lines thing. Because if they can't even notice when St. John's Ambulance are ferrying one of the actors off stage, then you'll be all right if you trip up on the line. <laughs> it's a very long winded way of saying, no, I don't really have very much stage fright. Yes, well, that's a story I think so many people could learn from, certainly classical musicians. I think we get very caught up in this whole sort of... Doing it perfectly. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I love so much about the globe. I think um, it frees you of that completely. And afterwards, my first kind of classical thing where they're like, oh, no, we have to do this Boeing. And it just yeah, <laughs> completely yeah. different world. So, yeah, yeah, I do like that relationship with the audience. And you can really do anything if you do it in character. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. It's like a great big improvisation. Exactly. And so as an actor, you're credited with over 100 stage, film, television, radio productions. I counted. So. Is that right? If I can reach yes. a ton, good God, I can retire. 
Oh, lovely. It's extraordinary, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from a Broadway production of Private Lives with Kim Cattrall to numerous Shakespeare plays, TV shows, including The Crown, Doctor Who, Midsummer Murders, and feature films like the most recent Star Wars movie. Yeah. And I was just wondering, if is there a particular format that you most enjoy? Stage, film, television, radio? To be honest, I love the mix of it. During this lockdown, one of the puppeteers on The Lorax uh, and a very fine actor called David Ricardo Pierce called me up and said, do you fancy doing? He said, I've heard that you've got some home recording equipment. Do you want to be Ebenezer in A Christmas Carol? We're going to record it with actors all in their homes all over the world. There's a guy in South Africa, a guy in Hong Kong. And we all were in our little curtained off booths with our hypersensitive microphones sending these sound files to the editor who then put it all together and I thought I love this I love this you don't have to learn the lines you can create a wonderfully colorful and vibrant imaginative landscape just with a few words and noises so there's that end of it to the full bells and whistles of a feature film or a stage show which requires so much more technical stuff requires you to be completely conversant with the script. And then there's the difference between the live performance and the recorded performance. There's something irreplaceable about being in front of a bunch of people, whether it's 15 people or 2,000 people at a live performance where you build towards the climax of the play. It's all in one sitting as it were and then you get to the end and you deliver the final line and the curtain goes down or the lights go down and then the audience show their appreciation and it's just you know there's no high like it very true contrasted with doing a scene for a tv show where you can be quite excited about the script and the project and the part and even the lines and the actors you're working with But then once you get to the sort of 16th take of a little scene or a little shot and you think, oh, I'm so bloody sick of this scene and I can't do it naturally anymore. I I could 16 takes ago, but I can't I can't cry like I did 16 takes ago or I can't laugh naturally. It just, you know, it just it feels like just endlessly repeating something and killing it. But it's necessary to get an interestingly filmed version of a scene. So it's nice to shake it up to do a TV performance where you don't have the pressure of a live performance and then to do a play and remind yourself that you can still do it live. You can still learn all those lines and then to do a voiceover or radio play or something or a lockdown version of Christmas Carol. (laughs) Well, hello. Can I just say thank you? Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the show, it would mean the world to me if you'd rate and review also in pink. I'll make it super easy for you. And you can even win a prize. Submit your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts for a chance to win a 20-minute one-to-one virtual coaching session with me. Pick my brain about life, KonMari, or style. I'll announce the monthly winner on each Ask Alexandria episode, so be sure to listen out to see if your review gets picked. All you need to do is go to ratethispodcast.com 
slash also in pink and rate and review the show. Want tips on how to win? Write something genuine. Be thoughtful and let your personality shine through. Bonus points for a dash of charm. And for your weekly dose of podcast joy, subscribe to Also in Pink so you never miss a show. Thank you so much. You really are a star. And so after you've played a particular character, do those lines tend to stick with you over the years? No, no, they go completely. It's like dragging to the trash can on your computer and just dropping in. I remember doing Time of Athens at the Globe, which was the production I did before Taming of the Shrew, and I had to learn these vast curses as time and rails against Athens. And I thought, what an extraordinary opportunity to have been asked to learn this text. And the play hardly ever gets put on. Hardly any actors ever get to play Time of Athens. I thought, my God, am I blessed to, to be able to play this weird and wonderful role. He's the happiest man in the world, then he's the angriest, bitterest man in the world. And I had all these big, long, hundred-line curses in my head. And I was travelling home one night on a train, uh, and there was there was a bit of trouble on the train. I was, oh, God, no, what's going to happen? Some, some nutter with a knife or, you know, whatever. And it wasn't anything as bad as that. But I, I did sort of sit there thinking, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. If he comes close, I'm just going to explode into one of Timon's speeches. Because, of course, you don't know. You don't know what really to say in a situation like that, confronted with some person. You go, oh, sorry, could, 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 you, could you stop being aggressive and horrible to me? And then you trip on your words. Then you look like a fool. And I thought... I know, I know what I'll say. I'll just come out with you, Athens, ah, you know, and just go into a hundred lines of invective. uh, (laughs) And he'll think clearly that I'm mentally ill and leave me alone. Um, Anyway, he didn't come close to me and I didn't have to use it. But I did think that's a good reason to keep some of these things in your head. And therefore, after the time of Athens finished, I did keep some of the big speeches. I went over them once a week just to keep them in my brain. And then I thought, now I'm going to drag and dump with these two. So I dragged <laughs> and dumped. So I don't actually have... Actually, I, no, I do. I have... Oh, this too, too solid flesh would melt in my head at the moment because my daughter is applying to drama school and she has done that great Hamlet speech for her drama school auditions. And so by dint of going through it with her, it's reawoken it in my head. And so I sometimes just do it as I'm walking the dog because I think what a a lovely thing to do to speak those lines. Oh, are there a few lines from that you'd like to to tell us at the moment? (laughs) From that speech? Yes, just a little segment of it, if you like. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. Thaw and resolve itself into a dew. Or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it, ah, fie, it is an un... Is an unweeded garden that grows to seed things rank and gross in nature, possess it merely that it should come to this. But two months dead, nay, not so much, not two, so excellent a king that was to this. 
Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother, that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on, and yet within a month. I'll stop there. Um, even there, you see, I tripped up on it because I haven't gone through it for a few days. My brain doesn't hold on to these things. <laughs> oh, that was lovely, though. Thank you. <laughs> and yes, what has life been like in the pandemic? So you mentioned a little project you're working on, but has there been much acting work that's come through virtually? Well, there had not been anything since February 2020. So I think I got all the way through till... September or October on Rishi Sunak's handouts, which were gratefully accepted, and um, that helped. Although my wife has a, a small business which she is growing where she designs fabric and wallpaper, and that has mercifully kept a trickle of money coming in. But no, mm. we, it was not. It was not good. And then I got an episode of Gentleman Jack, which is a period drama on telly that sort of lesbian bodice ripper from the Georgian <laughs> period. It's, it's great. Um, and I was playing a mad English chap called Major Norcliffe Norcliffe, who apparently was a real fellow. So there was that sort of lockdown in the north back in the autumn, and I went up there in a car behind a thick sheet of plastic driven by this guy. We didn't speak all the way. He had a mask on, I had a mask on, and driven all the way to Yorkshire to do a a day in a stately home. You know, it was a nice job, but it was odd. It was very, very different. Uh, and then I've just recently been doing um, an episode of something filming here in Whitstable, which was really lovely. I live down in Kent, near Canterbury, in a seaside village called Whitstable. And I've always had to get on the train or get in a car to go to the place, to the theatre or to film somewhere. So to have something filmed here was wonderful. As soon as I heard it was happening, I wrote to the casting director going, please, please consider me for this. I, I've been wanting to cycle to work for decades. And uh, luckily it came my way. So a few weeks ago, I was playing some dodgy geezer called Alan uh, in a <laughs> church in Margate, pulling a knife on someone. Oh, splendid. And would you say that you've had any kind of lockdown realisation that's changed your perspective or priorities, having this time to kind of consider life and rethink things? Well, I am acutely aware of how difficult the pandemic has been for an awful lot of people, especially people on their own, elderly people on their own, younger people on their own. You know, I am immensely lucky to have a lovely partner and a couple of lovely children and a dog and now some chickens and you know a roof over my head and in, live in a nice town so for whatever my problems might have been like oh I'm, I haven't got an audience applauding me and you know where's my next paycheck going to come from we had a roof over our head and we were spending our time fairly happily if a little frustratedly but fairly happily. We live near big woods near Canterbury, so they were a big friend to us, and we took the dog there and ran there and kept fit. And So, again, just a, an overwhelming feeling of um, being blessed, really. Sure. And having the glorious sea nearby as well, which is nice. 
Yeah, a lot of fresh air here off the sea. I did feel awful for people who are in a big city, you know, in a flat without any outdoor space. It's terrible. But of course, all those things make you extremely grateful for the things that you were perhaps complacent about. Absolutely. And yes, it's been five years since we met in person. So after our stint at the Globe together in 2015, you made this short film with me. Yeah, filmmaker friend Marina Vidor shot it. And you did this delightful dramatic reading of a book I wrote and illustrated called The Hapless Rehearsal. That's right. Yeah, kind of comical insight into the world of classical music. And I have kind of a crazy story to tell you related to it. So this is something that happened just over a year ago. This was back in November 2019. And I'd been in New York City for the KonMari Consultant Training Course, which I did with Marie Kondo and her team. And I also took the opportunity to visit my dad in Baltimore, which isn't that far away. And so I was on the train traveling back to New York, passing through Delaware. And my husband, Ben, called and he said he just got this strange email from a storage facility and here are a couple lines from it. It says, regrettably, we have to inform you that last Friday, a fire started in a packaging company next door to our main storage warehouse. A fire which then migrated to the warehouse, totally destroying our facility where your units were kept. And can you guess what was in our storage units? All your books. Yes, about 4,000 copies of no. The Hapless Rehearsal. No, no. So it was such a shock, but um, it had a, a dark comic side to it as well. And we do have, you know, about 200 copies left that we kept in the flat. But okay. it's like, yes, <laughs> how unlikely is that? But oh, the silver gosh. lining was that the insurance money did cover, you know, printing costs, which it wasn't a book that sold terribly well or anything, but I just thought... <laughs> That's such yeah. a mad thing to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, you did tell me that uh, I'm surprised that they did not sell like hotcakes because they, they, it was a beautiful little book. But um, you did tell me that they were not selling like hotcakes. But uh, the irony is that they are burnt like hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. But at least you have 200 left. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, and you're in the lovely little film. And... Just being mindful of the time. We should tell the listener that we're on a, a race against the darkness. We've recently acquired chickens. My wife and children were pressuring me to say, oh, please, can we have chickens? And I went, oh, really? But we're already outnumbered. We've got the two children <laughs> and the dog. So that's three against two. And now you want to up the opposition by three. So there'll be two children, a dog and three chickens. Really? No, because I know who'll end up cleaning them out. Anyway, so I said, yes, all right, we can have chickens and I will even build a coop, but I will never scrape the crap off their perch. (laughs) Never do the mucking out. No. Yes, I agreed to the whole thing on, on those conditions, but I don't mind putting them out and getting them in. They're quite sweet things, uh, but they, they need to be got in before Fox o'clock, which we call whatever our twilight is and at the moment it's about quarter past four so uh, so it's a real danger yes <laughs> yeah. uh, i mean good luck to the fox that gets into those things i've made it with railway sleepers and chicken wire apparently won't keep a fox out you have to use heavy duty welded mesh really okay properly staple gunned in and you know 
it needs the, I've got several landmines around it too, so that if they start burrowing, they'll go up in smoke. <laughs> That's a delightful image. Yes. Fire is a theme here, isn't it? My books yeah. and your, yeah. <laughs> the foxes. <laughs> and I love the way that you recently described your personal style to me. You called it pirate chic, which I think seems very Petruchio. <laughs> Well, I was being kind to myself. My wife describes it as scarecrow chic, actually. I call it pirate chic because I think it's somehow it's, you know, to be a, a wild, wild man of the waves is somewhat more romantic than being stuck in the middle of a field scaring crows away. <laughs> so what does pirate chic look like then? Can you describe it for us? Well, it's uh, it's not sort of studied in its dishevelledness. <laughs> it, I, I don't get up and go, ooh, I need to distress those trousers a bit more and I need to put that badly worn shirt together with that particular scarf. You know, I'll get out of bed and put my running gear on and I'll go running and then I'll come back and I'll forget to have a shower and I'll take off my running shorts and I'll pull my holy jeans on over the top of my lycra leggings and then I'll have my sweaty running shirt on and then I'll put a jumper over that and then knot a little neck scarf around it in a natty way and but there's no plan to it it's just whatever is lying around and I never buy new clothes so it's always falling apart but I quite like it because actors have to generally look smart and there's a lot of attention that goes into their appearance on stage and then if you have to go to a black tie do or attend some gala thing, you've got to dress up smart. And I love not caring about it. I like clothes to go and go and go. I never throw things away. I was, you know, my jumper that I've got is I've had for 30 years and it's, I mean, it's doing all right, but it's got big holes in it. <laughs> it all adds to the charm of your uh, unique personal style. And... Would you say that you have any kind of daily habit or ritual that brings you joy? That would be exercising with the dog. Oh. I think it's either running with him in the woods, or if I'm feeling tired, then just walking while he races around trying to kill squirrels. It's almost obsessive compulsive, I would say. You know, if, if I don't have either a tiring walk or a run around the woods, then I feel agitated. I'm sort of running from death, I think, is how I feel about it, that you reach a certain point in your life and you think, I could just sit on the sofa and eat scones and butter and jam, or I could still eat the scones and butter and jam, but also run and therefore stay strong. Both my parents have departed this life and my dad, you know, did less and less and less in his life. He'd worked very hard, but, you know, he sat down and never really got back up again. And I did sort of make a promise to myself that I would always keep my legs strong, which is no mean feat because they look like chicken legs, but they are strong <laughs> chicken legs. There was a woman at my son's school, by the way, who I turned up in my running gear one day with my chicken legs out. And I actually overheard this woman say, oh, there's old chicken legs. I thought, oh, my God, how rude. Oh, my God. So I brought this home to my children and, um, and I said, what am I going to do? I don't know this woman. Apparently she's not very pleasant. What do I do? Do I go up to her and confront her? I overheard her saying, there's old chicken legs. And I turned around and she was sort of, you know, pretending not to laugh. And I thought, no, I know. Every time I see her now, I'll just go, muck, 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 when I walk past her. And I will own being a chicken. 
I love that. That's uh, the main thing with, I think, personal branding or style. Own yeah. whatever it is Own that it. Yeah. you are or want yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, we've come to the final act or yes. maybe the epilogue. So I have a few quick fire questions for you to end the show. Yes. So, drum roll. Okay. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. <laughs> So, what's your most treasured possession? And of course, no judgment. My most treasured possession? I don't know, my wedding ring? I have to take it off sometimes for a job because they'll say, you know, your character's not married and it all looks wrong. So I have to take it off and I, and I, and I can't get it off really, but I do get it off with some soap and then I just fret the whole time going, if I lose it, <laughs> yeah. Well, your wife will be delighted to hear that, I'm sure. Yeah, should be worth a kiss, shouldn't it? <laughs> and what's your favorite article of clothing or accessory in your current wardrobe of pirate chic? Has <laughs> <laughs> my eye patch, my treasured eye patch, or my wooden leg? No, um, I love my French wellies. Ooh. For my 50th birthday a couple of years ago, I bought in Lille uh, a pair of aigle wellies you know rather like hunter wellies in england they are the go-to brand in france they have a neoprene lining so that your foot stays warm uh, they have a proper grip and a heel uh, a fine pair of things for walking in muddy woods oh lovely and where do you go to get inspired i suppose the woods the bleen woods which are all around canterbury hectare after hectare of amazing ancient forest and yeah do you have a, a book or resource that you'd recommend for everyone well the writings of my friend hannah vincent she's an up-and-coming writer very very lovely complete works of william shakespeare always thrill i adore dickens i read 20th century american novels as part of my degree at East Anglia University a very long time ago and loved F. Scott Fitzgerald, John Dos Passos and Hemingway and those great writers of America in the 20th century. So they're a, a lovely go-to place for me fiction-wise. And have you ever played a Dickens character on stage or? No. Oh. Well, I've played Ebenezer in my larder, it's a sort of two meters by one meter sort of room off the back of our kitchen lined with shelves with all the tinned goods and packets of pasta. And I bought this sound baffling acoustic curtain meterage, which I hook up and I create this completely cocooned little place to record stuff in. It's my sort of pandemic man cave. <laughs> Even if I haven't got something to record, I just go in there and dribble, hum to myself. But we did this lockdown recording of A Christmas Carol. And my children are in it. My boy plays young Ebenezer and my daughter plays Fan. But it's an updated version of A Christmas Carol. But it's uh, very lovely. And here's a very KonMari question for you. What would you say that you're grateful for? my own ability to be happy and to be hopeful. That's what we all need at the moment. And finally, what do you love most about life? I made myself cry. My children. 
Well, thank you so much, Simon. It's been a great pleasure reconnecting and chatting with you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> Let's hope it's not quite so long before we next meet. Let's hope so. Let's get together and eat some delicious cake. Excellent. <laughs> well, hope you enjoyed that chat with actor Simon Paisley Day. Be sure to check out the full episode page. Simon's showreel is a lot of fun, and you can watch his wonderful dramatic reading of The Hapless Rehearsal, my comical illustrated book. So, here are some key takeaways from our conversation. As Simon says about his friendship with co-star Samantha Spiro, argument can cement a friendship, but as long as you do it in character. And you really can do anything if you do it in character. So next time you need to present something or play something on stage in a classical concert, remember it's not about you, it's about your audience. As long as you stay in character and get on with the show, no one will realize you bungled that bit or misspoke those lines. What matters is the connection you have with your audience. So give them a really good show. And when it comes to style, once you figure out what you're happy and comfortable wearing, own it. Like Simon, you can even come up with a fun name for your personal style, like Pirate Chic. That's our show then. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life.